Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The death toll in Turkey keeps rising after a devastating earthquake this morning. State Department officials now offering U.S. support. Officials approve a controlled release of hazardous chemicals at a train derailment site in Ohio. Governor Mike DeWine says it's not yet clear when residents can return to their homes. A counterintelligence executive gives his analysis of the Chinese spy balloon. What exactly was it doing in U.S. airspace and where to from here? Just one more day until President Biden delivers his State of the Union address. We take a look at recent poll numbers to track his support for another presidential run. And a report criticizes the media for its coverage of the Russia-Trump collusion narrative. The author saying the media wasn't transparent about its work. At least 3,500 people are dead and at least 10,000 are injured in Turkey and northern Syria. That's after two massive earthquakes hit the region this morning. The 7.9 magnitude quake hit in the early hours of Monday morning. It was felt in several provinces in Turkey as well as in neighboring Syria. This drone footage shows parts of the devastation in the border region. A Turkish official says almost 8,000 people were rescued across 10 provinces. Almost 3,000 buildings collapsed, leaving thousands without a home. We barely escaped from inside the house. We have four children and we left the house with them at the last moment. I guess there are several people trapped inside. It was a huge disaster. Our situation is very bad here. We are waiting without water or food. We are in a miserable state. The U.S. Department of State says it's already in contact with Turkish officials offering support. The Department of State is in close contact with our Turkish allies and our humanitarian partners, and our initial assistance response is already underway. We are determined to provide any and all assistance to help those affected by these earthquakes. The State Department also offered support to Syrian officials. Turkey's health minister, along with the country's president, declared seven days of mourning. Bin, on bir bin. We are in immense sadness. I wish God's mercy on all our citizens who lost their lives, and I wish our injured a speedy recovery. My condolences to our people. Many aftershocks rocked the two countries since the initial quake Monday morning. In the first 11 hours, the region felt about a dozen significant aftershocks with a magnitude of at least five. A second quake with magnitude 7.5 also hit about nine hours after the first and was likely related. The border region between Turkey and Syria sits on top of major fault lines and is frequently shaken by earthquakes. Around 18,000 were killed in similarly powerful earthquakes that hit northwest Turkey in 1999. And back in the U.S., Ohio plans to begin a controlled release of hazardous chemicals after a train derailed in a village near Pennsylvania. Governor Mike DeWine said he hopes the release will avert a catastrophic explosion. Train cars carrying hazardous materials derailed Friday, causing an inferno that's burned for days. Governors of both Ohio and Pennsylvania ordered immediate evacuations for a one-mile-by-two-mile area surrounding East Palestine on the eastern edge of Ohio. The rail company estimates the controlled release of chemicals could burn for one to three hours. DeWine said it's not clear when residents will be able to return to their homes. And new details emerge about the Chinese spy balloon as the U.S. recovers its debris from the sea's surface. 
NTD's Iris Tao has the latest on what the Pentagon and the White House are saying. After the U.S. shot down a Chinese spy balloon on Saturday, Navy ships are now collecting debris in an area that's roughly 15 football fields in size. And Beijing is now accusing the U.S. of attacking what it calls a civilian airship. But the U.S. National Security spokesperson reiterated today that a balloon was indeed conducting surveillance over sensitive military sites in the U.S. We certainly came into office aware that the Chinese were uh, continuing this this program of uh, of spy balloons, um, uh, and that they were continuing to try to improve this capability, this military capability. And the State Department says the PRC knows precisely what this was doing uh, over the United States. And I asked President Biden today if the U.S. can trust China when it comes to the balloon. Can we trust it on other things? Here's what he told me. Can you trust it on other things now? question of the balloon and attempting to spy in the United States is something that's anticipated in China. The question is whether or not when you ask China what they're doing, they didn't deny they have the balloon up there. They didn't deny that it was. It's not a question of China. The question is deciding where we can work together and where we have opposition. While Democrats say Biden did the right thing at the right moment, some GOP lawmakers are calling Biden's response weak. And Congressman Joe Wilson is even calling for Biden to resign over what he calls a catastrophic Chinese spy balloon spectacle. Lawmakers are expected to receive classified briefings on the Chinese spy balloon in the coming days. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with counterintelligence executive Casey Fleming. He's the CEO of Black Ops Partners Corporation and shares his analysis of the Chinese regime's spy balloon. Casey Fleming, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Casey, you're a counterintelligence executive. You've been following the CCP and you know, examining their actions for a long time. What can you tell us about the spy balloon incident? Well, first and foremost, the American people need to understand this is their aha moment. This is just not, just like 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. Uh, could they fly a balloon over the United States and breach our, our sovereignty and our security? They did. They absolutely did. So this is the aha moment where Americans wake up to the true CCP threat and to the seriousness uh, that they present, that the CCP presents to the rest of the world and specifically to the United States. Um, this is also uh, two levels up now on strategic risk to companies. Companies need to understand that their investments, whether it's supply chain, financial, or otherwise, are at extreme risk. Uh, we very well could be on the cusp of war, and uh, this also goes for companies as well as government. Uh, they breached our sovereignty. It showed uh, they were determining what our weakness is, and they're presenting that to the rest of the world as our weakness. That's part of their narrative that America is in decline. This is also out of Sun Tzu. Uh, war is based on deception. And what were they doing over our missile silos and nuclear capabilities, nu nuclear capabilities and nuclear bases? Uh, in my professional opinion I, opinion, I believe that they were tracking our satellite communications back and forth with our satellite. You can't get that through satellites. You have to get that on a lower orbit. So. Um, also, this could also be used, or balloons like this could be used for other delivery mechanisms uh, on on, that are very, very much more sensitive and serious 
uh, from a nefarious standpoint. Uh, the other piece of it, balloons travel at a very slow rate. Uh, they, this one, in particular, seems to have the capability to loiter as long as it wanted or do uh, as much time they wanted over target. Uh, and uh, and then follow the jet stream where that took where that took the balloon. So the debris field on a balloon is much limited because it's uh, it's traveling much slower than other objects in the atmosphere. So when they finally did shoot it down over the East Coast, it was a seven mile debris field. So think about that. Did we have a seven mile debris field through its entire track across the continental US? You bet we did. In a lot of cases, we had thousand miles or more uh, of a radius uh, where we could have shot that balloon down, especially when it entered US airspace in the Aleutian Islands. Any more information on this? People want to follow, follow this? We connect the dots for them. Follow our company page on LinkedIn. You spoke about the message that this incident is sending to the Chinese people. What kind of message do you think it's sending to the regime? To the regime, it just reinforces their thought that uh, the United States is weak, we're slow to respond, we, uh, they can walk all over us because they're the new dominant player on the world scene and they have every intention of replacing the United States. And this, this, this is one uh, element of that. Right. Now, why do you think the U.S. didn't shoot it down sooner? I think uh, it caught the U.S. by surprise. The reason it wasn't shot down is that uh, we we really couldn't believe that it happened, and we were caught flat-footed from a military perspective. Uh, I will I will tell you my personal opinion that there's no way that a U.S. balloon would ever fly anywhere near China. And if you if you look back in I believe 2001, the Hainan Island incident, uh, a, a, Navy, uh, a Chinese fighter pilot. Uh, forced a Navy reconnaissance plane down out of U out of uh, international airspace uh, onto Hainan Island. So you can see even way back when that uh, the CCP uh, overstepped into international airspace and forced down a, uh, a U.S. Navy plane. A U.S. balloon would never be allowed anywhere near Chinese airspace. And so what do you think should happen now? I think uh, the American people as individuals need to understand really what this true threat is. I get asked this all the time, Casey, what do you think this is? And I'm like, this is World War III. This is what World War III looks like. You've got China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and Pakistan, along with the Taliban, aligned against the United States and the free world to defeat democracy and reestablish a new world order of total control, surveillance, and, uh, and punishment if you don't follow uh, their rule. That means that's what's on the table for the American people the Ameri and their children and their grandchildren. So the American people need to wake up. They need to hold their government accountable and say, you need to help protect us and stop the nonsense here. And draw China's already drawn the line in the sand by many, many different times. This is just drawing the line even closer in the sand by, by sending a uh, communications satellite through the United States. So it's uh, it's raised the stake of war. In fact, there's a there's an old terminology, an old term back in World War II. Um, you know, when the balloons launch, um, that's when you know we have a, a uh, an airstrike when it's coming. So the balloons have launched. The balloons are are lifting, and uh, it's uh, actually ironic that this is uh, the issue that's at hand. Indeed. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Casey Fleming, CEO of Black Ops Partners Corporation. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All eyes will be on President Biden tomorrow night as he's scheduled to give his second State of the Union address. This comes as a new poll shows that a majority of Democrats say Biden shouldn't run again for president. 
NTD's Jason Perry has those details. When President Biden gives his State of the Union address on Tuesday, many expect him to talk about the economy. Biden recently praised his administration's efforts on this very issue. You know, as of this month, we've created 12 million new jobs. We've created more new jobs in two years than any president did in their entire term. Representative Jim Himes agrees the economy will be one of Biden's strong points for his State of the Union address. He said this on MSNBC. You know, the president's in a pretty strong position to talk about what I think Americans care most about, which is not Chinese balloons over South Carolina, but in fact, the economic health of the union. And we just saw a staggering jobs report, a stunning jobs report, half a million jobs uh, created. Nobody expecting that. The Biden administration also passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, among others. But a new poll by The Washington Post and ABC News shows that 62 percent of people don't think Biden has accomplished much in his first two years. This will also be Biden's first time to address a divided Congress as president. And the Republican majority has yet to raise the debt ceiling. Representative Buddy Carter addressed this issue on Fox 28. What I hope to see from him is, is a willingness to negotiate and let's get in some, some real lasting reforms that will help us to, to bend that curve and to get down on, on the amount of, of debt that we have. This country cannot sustain this, this current route that we're on is not sustainable. Biden may also hint at running for president again, but a new AP NORC poll may not be in his favor. It shows about 80% of American adults, including about 60% of Democrats, don't want him to run for president again. Jason Perry, NTD News. And when it comes to the presidential election next year, the primary season will look very different. The Democratic Party just made South Carolina the first state to hold the primary. The Democratic Party on Saturday approved reordering its 2024 presidential primary, replacing Iowa with South Carolina in the leadoff spot. The vote took place during a three-day Democratic National Committee event in Philadelphia. If this new plan holds, South Carolina would hold its primary first on February 3, 2024. New Hampshire and Nevada would keep their early slots, followed by Georgia and Michigan. Iowa's new date has not been determined. States with early contests play a major role in determining the nominee. That's because candidates struggling to raise money or gain political traction often drop out before visiting states outside the first five. Media attention and policy debates concentrate in those areas, too. President Biden endorsed the new plan after his win in South Carolina in the 2020 primary. He suffered losses in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada. In talking about electoral reform, there are also changes happening in North Carolina. The North Carolina Supreme Court voted last week to rehear two cases involving election maps and voter identification laws. This is a win for the state's Republican lawmakers. They asked the court to rehear the cases. Republicans gained a majority on the state Supreme Court in the November midterms. In one of the cases, the state Supreme Court ruled on December 16, 2022, to strike down a law requiring photo voter identification. The court had a 4-3 Democratic majority back then. The judges cited alleged discrimination against minorities as the justification. In the other case, the state Supreme Court ruled on the same day to reject electoral maps drawn by the state's GOP majority legislature. 
The maps are for congressional elections and state Senate elections. Both cases were previously ruled against North Carolina's Republican lawmakers. Now the state Supreme Court has a Republican majority of 5 to 2. Both cases will be reheard on March 14th. The Columbia Journalism Review published a four-part report on what it called the media's mishandling of the Trump White House. Author Jeff Gerth concluded that the credibility of journalism is declining. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. The erosion of journalistic norms and the media's own lack of transparency about its work has damaged its credibility with the American public. Investigative journalist Jeff Gerth draws this conclusion in a four-part examination of the press's promotion of the Russia collusion narrative during the Trump White House. The report, released last Monday by the Columbia Journalism Review, is the culmination of an 18-month investigation. Gerth, who spent 30 years at the New York Times, puts the full scope of the media's coverage into perspective. For example, in part one of the series entitled The Press Versus the President, Gerth named several outlets that promoted the Russia-Trump collusion theory. One of the first out of the gate was the Washington Post. It broke the story that the Democratic National Committee had been hacked. The outlet blamed Russia. Ironically, Hillary Clinton began her campaign facing scrutiny over Russia ties. But Gerth said by the time Trump took office, the FBI and the CIA believed Russia helped Trump win the election. The CJR editor-in-chief Kyle Pope told the Washington Examiner no narrative did more to shape Trump's relations with the press than Russiagate. After the election, Trump expressed a hope that he and the press could get along. But Gerth said Trump was unaware of the coming tornado. The day before Trump's inauguration, the Times featured a story on the federal investigation into alleged leaks between Trump associates and Russian officials. The story immediately came under fire. Former FBI agent Peter Strzok, who was leading the Russia interference probe, texted Gerth, no substance and largely wrong, adding, the press is going to undermine its credibility. Later, Strzok's anti-Trump text messages led to his removal from the investigation. Trump would soon popularize the term fake news. And now, at the beginning of his third run for president, he's still at it. The fake news says I'm not campaigning very hard. I say they are stupid and corrupt. As the Times story picked up traction, then-Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Panel, Devin Nunes, tried unsuccessfully to squash it. In a previous interview with NTD, Nunes said he's still dealing with it. Even though I'm now outside of Congress, still dealing with this, um, I think should concern a lot of, a lot of people in, in America that, that this still hasn't, you know, justice still hasn't been delivered. In an afterward, Gerth felt compelled to weigh in. Among other things, he said the Trump-Russia coverage didn't report facts that ran counter to the prevailing narrative. Reporting the facts is a traditional journalistic standard. Arlene Richards, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Fox says they've sold all their Super Bowl commercial spots in advance of Sunday's game. Find out how much airtime $7 million gets you. San Francisco held an event to showcase rare books. And today's Jason Blair went to see what the exhibitors had to offer.
now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The Super Bowl on Fox just days away. The network has announced they've sold all their Super Bowl ad space with some 30-second commercials commanding more than $7 million. Now, most spots went for between six and seven million as viewership typically reaches an audience in excess of 100 million people. Last year, NBC said their highest spot went for seven million, up from the six and a half million in 2021. And while last year's Super Bowl was known as the Crypto Bowl, as four different cryptocurrency companies ran ads, this year will be different. After the collapse of XTX in November, there's no crypto companies in the lineup. Instead, alcoholic beverages will dominate the night as Anheuser-Busch gave up its exclusive alcohol deal, paving the way for others to join in. The Super Bowl airs Sunday evening, starting at 6.30. And in college basketball news, Purdue retained their number one ranking in the AP poll today, despite losing at Indiana on Saturday. The Boilermakers, who were unanimous number one team last week, garnered 38 of a possible 62 number one votes. Behind them, Houston moved up a spot to second, followed by Alabama, Arizona, and Texas at five. Tennessee, meanwhile, fell four spots to number six after their loss to Florida. They're followed by UCLA, Virginia, Kansas, and Marquette at 10. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has eight games on tap, including what will soon be a new look Mavs squad that reportedly traded for Kyrie Irving to pair with Luka Doncic. They play Utah tonight, while Irving will reportedly make his team debut Wednesday night against the Clippers. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL All-Star break is over as six games dot the schedule tonight, featuring one of the hottest teams in the league, the New Jersey Devils, hosting the Vancouver Canucks. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And lastly... Rare books, photos, maps, programs, and more were on display at Rare Books San Francisco for three days over the weekend. NTD's Jason Blair got to a chance to speak with some of the exhibitors and see what they had to offer. I'm here at the Rare Book Fair in San Francisco. There are three floors with 60 exhibitors from around the world showcasing collectible books, magazines, photos, and other hard-to-find publications. The event is called Rare Book San Francisco, and it's the first time in a decade that the city by the bay has hosted a rare book fair. It's an amazing opportunity to see so much historic material all in one place. Um, you get to talk with the experts who are dealing with the materials, and you can even take some home with you if you'd like. At the front, there was a display of prints and historical photos related to the host city like this original program from the 1936 opening of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's great because it opens up in the center with a panorama of the bridge. This next autographed rare find is one of only 500 copies made and goes for $335,000. So here we have the true first printing of J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. So in America, it was known as the Sorcerer's Stone, but actually in the UK, it was published as Philosopher's Stone. Then going further back in time is this ritualized copy of Mahayana Buddhist Sutras. It's a manuscript um, in Japanese 
from uh, the Nara period um, of Japan, it's from the uh, 8th century, so in the mid-700s, um, and it's uh, just actually preserved in extraordinary condition. One area that bookseller John Wendell specializes in is English poet and artist William Blake, one of the best-known names in English literature after Shakespeare. This, for example, is, is classic. Uh, this is an absolutely classic Blake-style watercolor treatment uh, where he uses these particular colors and, and brush strokes in a way that was unique to him at the time. Rare Books San Francisco partnered with the Book Club of California, which was established in San Francisco in 1912. It aims to preserve and promote the history of books, book arts, and the history of California and the West. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.